If you're a small business owner and you're up against huge venture-backed, private equity-backed, publicly traded organizations, you may not have the war chest of cash, but one of the things you can do is have a culture that ends up being a very defensible competitive advantage that no amount of money can really buy. One of the reasons I don't really like Google's sort of thing of don't be evil is it's a negative. It's what you're not being. Because it'd be a little like if a therapist said, well, how do you feel? And he said, well, I don't feel angry. It's like, okay, well, we know that you don't feel. What do you feel? Think of groupthink. That's what blew up the challenger. Everyone looked at the problem the same way and they missed something obvious. And there was a result, like 10 heroes and astronauts died. They had a lack of thought diversity, which literally had lethal consequences. Hello, everybody. I'm Kelly Martin, and you're listening to Making It Work, brought to you by FedEx. We're more than halfway through this season, and boy, have we covered a lot. From supply chain headaches to celebrating success, this podcast is proud to give you the entrepreneurial insights you can't find anywhere else. We thought it was time to give the Making It Work entrepreneurs a bit of a break. So as they source new suppliers and update their investors, we talk culture with HR influencer Ben Brooks. So can a clear company culture really benefit a small business? Or is it all just a consultancy cash cow? Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. Okay, I'm here with Ben Brooks, HR influencer and founder and CEO of Pilot. Ben, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. I'm having a great start to my day and I'm thrilled to be in this conversation. That's wonderful. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about what being an HR influencer involves and how you, well, came to be one? Well, I mean, it's a pretty sexy thing, HR influence. You know, right? you, know you think about hotties in the world, you think of HR, and no, I'm kidding now. I am still surprised that this is a space that I've, I've got, I have carved out some influence and niche in because I didn't study this in school and I didn't have uh, jobs in the space until later in my career. Uh, but I'm a person who cares deeply about what work is like for people, their experience day to day, how organizations can create great cultures, promote diversity and inclusion, drive performance and strategic outcomes. And so I write a monthly column for HR Executive Magazine. I founded an award-winning employee development product and virtual SaaS business and uh, am just really fired up in general about pe- how people can be happier and more productive at work and in the rest of their lives. We have discussed company culture in this season already. It was within kind of an episode about hiring people. What we discovered was that small business owners are using company culture in order to hire the right people. Could you tell us what company culture means to you and why it's important to small businesses? Yeah, I think in any time you have a group of two or more people, there is some degree of culture. You know, what is normative, what the experience is like, how things get done, how communication happens. And so in a small business, you may not have defined your culture. You may not have a piece of paper that says this is our culture or a manifesto or defined your values or leadership framework or anything like that. But you still have a culture. And a culture is a function of what it's like to be there. And if you have eight people on your team and you have and you add a ninth person, they are likely to want to figure out what that culture is and align to it. Because that's a part of sort of fitting in in groups and succeeding, kind of tribing, if you will. And at the same time, you know, when it comes to hiring, there's a difference between culture, uh, culture fit you know, and culture add. Because part of diversity and inclusion is 
you have people, if you have only people that are exactly the same, you know, we're all the same, think the same, went to the same schools, worked in the same industries, maybe the same age, gender, race, et cetera. You, you can have kind of some homogeneity, which gets in the, in the way of creativity, growth, innovation, things that matter a lot to small business owners. So call me old fashioned, my view, <laughs> my, are you, are you sensing the, old fashioned. Yeah. Are you sensing the aggression, Ben? Are you sensing it? Yeah. I'll, I'll put yeah. it this way. When I think of my grandfather, who was a miner in the north of England, if I tried to explain company culture to him, he'd have just laughed in my face. And some would say that culture is organic. Culture is shaped by the people within the company. So why do we need a HR influencer to come along and help us forge a culture? Well, it may be called different things. When your grandfather was a miner you know, in, in northern England, there was a culture in the mine, I would assert. And what did he mine, by the way? Coal. Coal. So he's a coal miner. So there was a culture. There was a culture about how people let loose after a shift. Maybe they have a beer together. How new people may have to initiate. You know, They may have to do the crappiest job in the mine uh, as a part of a new person earning their stripes. If there was a problem, even how you spoke to a manager or how you resolve the conflict with a, with a fellow miner in the coal mine. There was a culture. He just wasn't called through this fluffy sort of word. He might have described it as like how things happen around here. What's it like here? How we get on? Who are my mates? Like that may be the kind of language he used to describe it, but it was still a culture. And to your point about organic, there's certainly a default culture in any organization. Your small business out there, you have a culture. You think, oh, we haven't ever done culture work. We never designed it. Well, you have one. It's just the default. How it's wound up is a result of everybody being there and doing stuff. That's the default. Where organizations typically excel is when they have a designed culture, right? An intentional one. It says, oh, wow, we want to you know, attract a certain kind of employee, or we want to have a certain reputation in the, in the industry in our, for our business, for our product or our services. We better have a culture that promotes this or does that. So example, if you think about customer service, right? A lot of the ways that small business owners beat out the big multinational companies is providing better service, right? They're more responsive. They can be more flexible. They answer the phone. They get back to you, all those sort of things. Well, if you're going to have a business strategy around being great at customer service, you need to have a culture that has people that are largely probably thoughtful, patient, empathetic, level-headed, organized. So what do you do to manage the internal affairs in a way that then has the experience of your brand, your product, your service, your people, the business strategy and the culture align? Whereas if you, had, if you hired a bunch of cantankerous, crusty, nasty people, <laughs> they're probably not going to provide very good customer service and you're probably not going to succeed as a small business owner. That sounds a little bit more like sound recruitment than culture, does it not? Well, there's you get a person, you started a job somewhere, right? You started someplace, but you adapt, you evolve there. So you just you know, day one, you're not the same as day 30 or day 300. So part of it is the training, it's the onboarding, it's the work assignments, it's the incentives, the performance management. You know, if you were to give the person who gave the top customer service a, you know, in the month a thousand US dollar bonus, that would create incentives, right? That would create focus. That would create priority that wouldn't happen just by recruiting someone, right? That when they're there, you design the game, sort of game theory or gamification, 
around the thing that you want. Maybe it's collaboration and teamwork. You want people to do things together. Or maybe it's helping other people. Maybe it's accuracy. You know, you're in a compliance or data or medical or advanced manufacturing environment, healthcare that requires really, really robust quality. It may be around quality or safety. It's going to depend on your industry, but that's where recruiting is sort of not enough. And a lot of small business owners make this mistake kind of in the HR space. If I just get great people, I won't have to manage them, develop them, incent them, review them, challenge them. But there's a life cycle that ends up with employees. And that's where employees typically will leave organizations if they feel like they're not getting a lot of that. It's interesting what you say about different industries coming to you and asking for different things. Because I would think in post-pandemic 2022, if you take into account, as you said, performance-related bonuses, working from home, you'd think there'd be kind of an optimal company culture that worked for everyone. It, it depends. There's often optimal skills. What Pilot we do is we help develop skills that are the same across industries, to your point, that, hey, you've got to have a good relationship with your manager, whether you work in coal mining or medicine, right? Hey, you have to organize your time and your priorities and your focus. You need to figure out how to work with your colleagues and your teammates. But those are sort of skills and behaviors that you want each person to exhibit, which is maybe different than the culture. I mean, imagine, again, a coal miner versus someone who works in a grassroots nonprofit focused on the environment. You'd think there probably is some difference there in terms of what's going to resonate, what's going to work, et cetera. And so part of what small business owners need to do is really don't try to copy. If you see Netflix has a, a culture deck that they put out, I think, 12 years ago. It's on the internet. It's this manifesto, and it's pretty, it's pretty bold. You know, they stand for stunning colleagues. You know, average performance is rewarded with generous severance. It's pretty tough, and it's a high standard. But should you, at your 50-person small business have the Netflix culture deck because you want to be successful because Netflix has been successful? Well, it depends. Are you willing to let go of people who are pretty good but not stellar? You can have the stomach to just end someone's job. If you are, then great. You can mimic or learn from some of that. But you have to kind of get back to what are your values as a business owner. You know, I'm a business owner. We got 40 some people that work for Pilot. There's things we make decisions all the time. When are people eligible for their 401k or their medical benefits? Well, I'll have a lawyer that says, don't do that for the first 90 days or for six months or something on the retirement. Whereas it doesn't align with my values to have to dangle medical care is a reward after some probationary period that I'm like, no, you get benefits on day one. Now, that's a values-based decision as the business owner that ties to our culture, which is when you work here, the company is going to take care of you, you know? You get great equipment, you get great benefits, you get flexibility, you get great vendors and support. So part of the culture is we attract people who want to be treated well. We're not putting you in the back of the plane, right? You're in first class when you work at Pilot, you're treated that well. But then the expectation is that you treat our customers with the same level of thoughtfulness and care, which is a part of the reason that we win in the market is we've got so many customers that are repeat customers because of the service they get, which is tied back to our culture. Would you say it's paramount that company culture has to be ever-evolving? Because you use the example of Netflix, who, who came up with this plan of how of company culture and how employees should be treated. And 
I guess it's good to hold yourself to high standards, but people very often use the Google mantra, don't be evil. I mean, is it worth thinking that 20 years later, as a huge company, it's very difficult to hold yourself to the standards that you used to? Yes, the values change over time. If you want to have an example of that, think of a friend in their life before they had a child and after. (laughs) Their values change, where they spend their time, where they spend their money, what they worry about, what they talk about, uh, what they advocate for. Things change as our context or conditions change. And that's an important thing to realize as small business owners of what's important to you now may not have been what's important to you. Like when I started Pilot almost eight years ago, some of my values are very much the same. Our mission for everyone to feel powerful at work. That's Pilot's mission. We want everyone to feel powerful at work. That is as true today as it was eight years ago. But some of our values that we're refreshing and working on our culture right now have actually shifted a bit based on things we've learned based upon the changes in the world and the macro context, based upon kind of where I am as the owner in my life and what, you know, my evolution and awareness of what's important. So you don't want to be changing your values and your culture all the time. You don't want to just read a Harvard Business Review article when you're on an airplane somewhere and go, oh my gosh, this is our culture now or our values now. But you do want to be looking at it over time and refreshing and evolving it. Ideally, you're not doing kind of a hard right turn, but you're saying, hey, what of this is common and sort of evergreen and classic? And what do we need to tweak, modify, enhance, or add to kind of make it even better? What would you say is a good example of a company that has taken a step back and thought, we're not doing good enough in setting out our company culture and we need to change? All of the companies that we we kind of fetishize and read about in the business press, like the big you know, the Netflixes and the Googles, two of them that we, you and I both have brought up on this. But a lot of times, the companies that, that I often admire most are the small businesses that were companies you've never heard of. One of the, the companies I worked with was a, was a design studio that was in New York and LA and San Francisco, and it was about 50 employees. And I worked with the founder because I have a private small business CEO coaching practice in addition to running my SaaS business. I work with tons of small business owners around the country and around the world. You know, I work with them in Europe and other places as well. And to his credit, he really changed how decisions were made, who had power over certain things, transparency around financials, much more candor and directness. So, you know, and that was really in response to some of the feedback that he got from his employees, some of the listening he did, surveys, et cetera, was people felt, you know, hey, like I'm not being challenged or I don't feel like I'm growing here. Or I don't feel like I'm trusted. I'm feeling, I feel micromanaged. So he looked into what they did want to be. And what one of the reasons I um, don't really like Google's sort of thing of don't be evil is it's the negative. It's what you're not being rather than affirmative. Your values and culture generally should be what you want to be or are being or commit to be. Because it'd be a little like if the therapist said, well, how do you feel? And he said, well, I don't feel angry. It's like, okay, well, we know that you don't feel. What do you feel? Maybe like, oh, I feel really relieved, satisfied, excited. It's, it's much more interesting to kind of focus on that affirmative and what we commit to being. And so at that, at that design studio I mentioned, you know, it totally changed how projects were done with clients, you know, who got certain assignments, how people got rewarded. And it made the life a lot easier for the business owner because he was exhausted by feeling like he was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders 
having to make every decision, having to see every client presentation. And by changing the culture, it massively changed his work-life integration and his ease so he could be successful as a new parent and in his marriage and his many personal interests outside of the business. Because as most business owners know, you know, you don't want to have your entire, you know, you are not your business. That's like, that's a key thing people have told me. It's not a Ben line that your business and you are separate things. And it's in while our identities are really dense around being an entrepreneur and a business owner, it's really important to have that thing be different than us. Because if the business isn't doing well, then we're not doing well. And sometimes if we're doing well, but the business isn't, we can't take credit for that either. So they're related. There's a Venn diagram, but we've got to separate those things out as well. Is it okay for a business owner when setting out their company culture to admit we're not there yet? Okay, we don't have healthcare, but we'll get there. We don't have more than 10 days paid vacation or a working from home policy, but we'll get there. Or does it show a lack of commitment? Well, I think there's no right or wrong way to do things. And I'm not one to prescribe rules on people because every context or situation is different. But I think being explicit is one of the most powerful things a business leader can do. Oh, we want to grow is very different than we want to increase our recurring revenues by 20% and our new business by 30% by the end of the year. Huge difference between we want to grow and then the explicitness of that. Saying, hey, we don't have X, but we're going to work on it, or we'll have that within the next two to three years. That transparency, because then there's a sense of reality. People, if you're not explicit and clear and transparent about certain things and direct, it's probably the most important word besides explicit, people will make up their own conclusions. Oh, they just don't, they don't care. They don't value us. Um, they'd rather spend it on this or do that. And people have negative interpretations. So I think being open in those conversations, but I think also not limiting culture to just what I would call the employee value proposition. You know, the value proposition includes the culture, includes the benefits, and includes the policies, and includes the pay. But the culture is often what shapes the answer. If you're sitting down at dinner at night and you're with your spouse or your roommate or your child, and they say, how was work today? Very common thing. How's work today? What's like at the office or how's work? Culture affects that answer because you could be a coal miner or you could work at the nonprofit or you could work at the marketing design studio and your industry is one thing, but the culture shapes what it's like to be a miner and what it's like to work in a nonprofit and what it's like to be a designer. And you can work at two different design studios with two different cultures doing the same work every day, graphic design every day. But the answer to the question at dinner, how was work today, honey, would be dramatically different if one was a culture where people felt supported and included, they were growing, they felt that they could get help, and another was where they were given an assignment, they were left on their own, they were rather isolated, there was a lot of reactionary feedback to anything that they asked for. And you're still doing graphic design either way. But the context matters. You know, think of this as context is decisive. You often see this. You have, you know, business owners or leaders that will go from one organization to another, one where they were successful, and they'll fail in another one or vice versa. And sometimes it's not the person, it's the environment that shapes them, the system. And so we're really talking about shaping the context and the system of our businesses, which is often a very enduring competitive advantage that when you're up against if you're a small business owner and you're up against 
huge venture-backed, private equity-backed, publicly traded organizations, you know, families with wealth, you may not have the war chest of cash to do some of the big marketing things or to have the biggest fancy office or to be in the biggest markets. But one of the things you can do is have a culture that gets great people to make great products and services that stay a long time. That ends up being a very defensible competitive advantage that no amount of money can really buy because there are plenty of companies with gobs of money that have horrible cultures. Money and culture are not necessarily related. So I think it's very important to make this distinction because we have been talking about performance-related bonuses, healthcare, they all cost money. Yep. Can you have a good company culture for free? Absolutely. If you were to think of, can I be a kind person in this world? Does that cost money to be kind? No. Can I be thoughtful? Can I be generous? I may be generous with money, but I could also be generous with, with my time, with my creativity, my, my talents, not just my treasure. So you can have great culture for, for no money. Now it's going to cost some time or some thoughtfulness or some skills to do that. And, and you think about an employee's first day. Everyone focuses on hiring or recruiting, but the highest ROI thing you can do in all of HR is onboarding. The first two to four weeks are predictive of the entire career of an employee at that organization, how long they'll stay, how well they'll perform, how much they'll make. So it's almost like prenatal care or early education for a child. It's a forming, very nascent stage. And those things, you could have big teams that do that, et cetera. But there can also be the thing of like, you know, the manager takes you out to lunch on your first day or there's a, a welcome, you know, there's a welcome breakfast for you and it's bagels. Sure, maybe it'll you know, cost you 30 or $40 for bagels or donuts. But you don't have to have a really fancy thing. It's like it's to have business cards on their desk on the, or, or mail to their home office the day that they start because they're so proud to work there. They're going to send them to all their friends and they're going to be out and about and network like to like not miss that moment where they have to wait three months to get a business card versus they're so proud early on. That's a culture thing. That doesn't I mean you're going to spend money on business cards either way. It's just the timing of it. And it's, it's making sure people are supportive. It's asking, how's it going for you so far? How could we make you feel more supported? It's listening. It's investing time, right? It's helping to solve problems. It's seeing people struggle. Oh, gosh, you're, we're always having these issues with this IT system. And you say, well, gosh, should we replace that? It sounds like we have a crappy IT system. You may spend less money on a new system and make your employees much happier because you got off of some legacy technology or some server at your office or something else. And that may be something that you have a kind of a double win of less expense, and the fact that your employees don't spend half their day like rebooting the server. Like, what a waste of time. So I think that there's a sense of people will collapse culture in perks, I might call them. Oh, I go to Google and they've got catered. You can have sushi and matcha lattes and, you know, all sorts of, you know, and, and sirloin steak and stuff all day. That's a perk. Kombucha fountains, beer in the office, perk. Massages, perk, perk, perk. But if you're in a perk war, right? You're going to attract a person who's maybe not there for the culture or the mission or the work. And they'll probably go across the street if someone has better food or more massages or something. Are they there for sort of like what I would call like the right reasons? And nothing wrong with perks in and of themselves. But so much of what affects the dinner table answer of how was work today is not what they ate in the cafeteria for free for lunch. It was what they worked on. You know, I had a great presentation and you know what? I got some killer feedback that I really crushed it. 
or I got to you know present to the client instead of the principal or the founder. She let me do it, or my you know I I made a suggestion and they put me in charge of the project and I'm getting to recruit someone for the first time. I'm managing the interns. These are the things that affect it that don't necessarily cost money, but they cost thoughtfulness and time and intentionality, which is I think where small business owners have an advantage because if you're at a 15,000 or 150,000 or even 1,500 employee company, it's harder to be thoughtful and have human connection at scale. It's much easier if you're small. This is where small is a huge advantage. You can actually know your people. You're listening to Making It Work. Coming up. It's important that your hiring practices are attracting qualified candidates of different backgrounds. But the point is, once they're there, you have to be inclusive. You may have a, a, an older workforce, and then the Gen Z person comes in and says, well, have we ever thought about this? Or have we used TikTok for marketing? And if you shoot them down in a meeting, say, hey, you're new here. This has worked for 15 years here. That's not an inclusive culture. Think of groupthink, that's what blew up the challenger. Everyone looked at the problem the same way and they missed something obvious and there was a result, like 10 heroes and astronauts died. They had a lack of thought diversity, which literally had lethal consequences. We were talking a little, Ben, off air about the importance of diversity. And this is something quite close to my heart as well. Could you tell me a little bit about diversity and how it contributes to a strong company culture? Or actually, does it? Is it all in my mind? Well, diversity and inclusion is near and dear to my heart as well. I'm proud to be gay and be one of uh, very few certified LGBT-owned SaaS businesses with Pilot. And I've done a lot of work in the corporate and community work around diversity and inclusion including a help get don't ask, don't tell repealed in the military and a bunch of other interesting facets. So it's an area that I've, I've invested a lot of time and energy in. And Scott Page wrote a book called The Difference, I don't know, like maybe 12 years ago. And he mathematically proved that when teams were solving complex problems, if they were diverse, they produced better results, right? Diversity of perspective, diversity of thought. And so it was sort of proved that the operational or financial performance and output was better. Now, one of the challenges, though, is you can imagine if you've got a bunch of friends and you all maybe were from the same town or you went to the same university or you play in the same sports league or do a thing, and you're all going to go out one night. You're figuring out what's a good night out. Well, it probably would be pretty easy to figure out what kind of food or what part of town or how much money you're going to spend or how fancy or if you're going to eat or drink or how late you're going to be out because you're all from a similar background, right? There's some commonality. Now, if we were to have the same group of people be work colleagues and you have people from 10 different countries that grew up in 10 different countries in different ages of life, in different backgrounds or socioeconomic or education or race or ethnicity, gender, et cetera. And you're like, well, let's, we're going to go out and have a great, a really fun night out. You may have 10 very different definitions of a fun night out compared to your buddies. And so part of the inclusion side of diversity and inclusion is diversity, right? Is like, do you have the different perspectives, right? The different backgrounds, the different demographics, the numbers. But there's actually some research on boards of directors that if you don't manage inclusion, diverse boards perform more poorly if you don't manage the inclusion because you can have a lot of infighting, you can have a lot of conflict and conflict isn't bad. Conflict is an incredible part of innovation and the creative process. But you can have people be disempowered. You know, they'll be the person there that's the person of color or the female or the LGBTQ person, but they don't really feel that respected or that they can be themselves. 
So that's where culture can really play an important part because diversity in and of itself isn't really a value, right? A value is often something you could observe someone doing, kind of the movie test it's often called. But, you know, let's say inclusion or thoughtfulness, we could say is probably a value that, hey, was that, was that an inclusive behavior? How we onboarded that person, how we treated that customer, how we managed that conflict, how we staffed that project, how we designed the company offsite. We recently had an offsite for our company. We have a colleague, two different colleagues that have different uh, physical disabilities. And so being inclusive from a culture and values perspective meant that we made some trade-offs about some of the things we did or didn't do as a team and had some accommodations to make sure that they could participate fully. So I think that this is an important part where culture and diversity and inclusion come together because it's very easy to say, oh, wave the flag. We love diversity. It's all good. Virtue signal, right? Versus to actually have the behaviors. If someone's Jewish or Muslim or other faith that's a minority faith in your organization, do they feel comfortable asking for their religious holidays off and using their PTO as an example? Everyone gets the same you know, holiday uh, accrual, but do they feel comfortable saying, hey, it's Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur or Ramadan. I'm going to take this time off. That's an example of where you have diversity and a company policy and culture kind of all come together. Let's talk a little bit about how diversity makes your company or, or team stronger then. I've worked for a couple of
everyone looked at the problem the same way and they missed something obvious. And as a result, like 10 heroes and astronauts died, right? And stalled our progress in space because they did, they had groupthink. They had a lack of thought diversity, which literally had lethal consequences. So just to steer it back to company culture then, like you said, diversity is nothing without inclusion, right? Which could form part of the company culture. So how does a small business turn its diversity into a great attribute by improving inclusion? How do you become more inclusive? Well, I think, you know, obviously you have to have something to work with. So it's important that your hiring practices are attracting qualified candidates of different backgrounds and that you might take a risk on some folks and stretch beyond kind of what you're used to. But the point is, once they're there, you have to be inclusive. You may have an older workforce, let's say, and then you hire a Gen Z, someone who's just out of university, maybe. And then the Gen Z person comes in and says, well, have you ever thought about this? Or have we use TikTok for marketing? Or why is this web? This doesn't work on a mobile phone. I, I think that's a problem. And if you shoot them down in a meeting, say, hey, you're new here. Like, you need to, like, know what this has worked for 15 years here. That's not an inclusive culture. Versus saying, you know, you may say, hey, here's the data, here's what we're finding out, or how could we do that? Or, hey, we tried that, it never worked out. What would your ideas might be? It doesn't mean we have to like listen and do every idea that a brand new person suggests, but the culture, if it's sort of exclusive, will be sort of like shut up, earn your place, those sorts of behaviors. You know, an inclusive culture is, again, that thoughtfulness. That probably the most, the best number one thing, if you could take away as a business owner out of this conversation from, do you want to be, you know, diversity, inclusion, movie thoughtfulness your empathy, your consideration for others. And so that's that's a part of being inclusive, flexible policies. So your policies and your benefits, are they inclusive? That's a key thing because it sends a signal about what you value. Oh, we only really care about families if it's through a traditional opposite sex natural birth. Well, not everyone can do that. Maybe someone's a single parent. Maybe someone's LGBTQ. Maybe they're not able to conceive. Maybe they, for a value, they want adoption. That's just an, a tangible example of you got to look at your policies, how you make decisions, et cetera, to have a bit more fluidity and flexibility for them to be truly inclusive. Because typically inclusion is kind of a wider catchment and some more flexibility. So you were talking to me a little bit earlier about this. Tell me about the role of learning and development in diversity. Well, it's increasingly important that employees that are from underrepresented backgrounds, which could vary again by industry or by geography. It may be that you're a veteran that makes you underrepresented or you've got neurodiversity or other some sort of physical thing. It can depend. Maybe you're a female in an industry that's majority male. Recruiting is not enough, right? Just because you know, oh, we like hired a bunch of women or we hired a bunch of, you know, Gen Z, whatever it may be, that, that it's that employees then once they're there say, well, how are you helping me advance? Is this a place where I feel like I can grow and succeed? Because there's a lot of competition for diversity hiring right now. If someone's a lot of recruiters and things on LinkedIn out there. So employees have to see that they're not only welcomed there by getting a job offer, but that they're wanting that the company sees that there's a future for them over a longer period of time. And typically they need to literally feel invested in. So the learning and development is a great way to like put them in a program like pilot is a way to invest to maybe get them a, or an individual coach or the, their higher education or to bring in an assessment or get them a mentor. These are all ways, you know, let them, let them go on the business trip. They don't necessarily need to go on, but it'd be good exposure for them to present to the client, to do the pitch. Those are all ways. And so the learning and development and diversity go hand in hand because 
if you've got diverse people, you need to make sure that they are growing and that they can be future managers and executives at your organization, that they can evolve, they can be culture carriers. And if they come from different backgrounds, you've got someone who grew up in a culture, maybe outside the United States that immigrated here, their first generation, they may not know how to interact with a manager and to manage up, right? They may not know how to speak up about their needs. They may have been raised in a tallest poppy culture, which is like, keep your head down, you know, don't say anything. So part of this calibration is helping diverse talent, like know how to succeed in your environment, which may be very different than the environments that they grew up in or previously worked in. So that's where the learning piece really goes hand in hand. And the best thought leaders around diversity right now are really focusing on don't you celebrate Black History Month and Pride Month and International Women's Day and AAPI Awareness Month and all these great things. But like, let's focus on for these colleagues, once they're there, helping them become the best versions of themselves, because that's the real commitment to fostering sort of sustainable diversity. We've spoken a lot about what business owners can do in this episode, but what about employees? What part can I play as an employee in diversity in my company? It's so important. It's the same role that an employee can play in culture, which is a huge one. You know, we tend to focus on sort of a command and control mindset that a few people at the top of the pyramid make all the choices and affect all the things. But in reality, it's no different than being at a party, you go to someone's house party, a garden party, something else like that. It's not just the host that affects the vibe of the party. It's the guests. Are we courteous to one another? Do we introduce ourselves? Are we friendly? Do we offer to get a drink? Do we make suggestions? Do we tell jokes? Do we exchange cards? The vibe is the same at work in an inclusive workplace. So, you know, if someone's new at your organization and you're an employee, do you wait to say hello to them or do they say hello to you? If you're if you're the one that's been there, you should say hello. Hey, I haven't seen you around. Who are you? Welcome. Can I help you? Let's have coffee. Very different than being like, I don't know who that person is. They haven't introduced themselves to me. Well, they're the new person. We should welcome them like you welcome someone to a community or a neighborhood or a faith organization, a social club. So that's where employees, it can be the littlest gestures let me show you how you how to use this system. Let me tell you how to succeed in this kind of a meeting. Oh, do you want me to review that? That's where you can be quite inclusive. You're, you're doing an event. You're having a happy hour. Are you inviting them? Hey, we're all getting drinks. Do you want to come? We're all having lunch. Hey, a couple of our spouses, we all go golfing. Would you want to come? Are you, are you in a relationship? Would you want to come? Is there a friend you'd want to bring? It, like inclusion, the line I often use is belonging begins with me. And if everyone is focused on helping everyone else feel like they belong, that creates an amazing culture that no one founder or principal or small business owner could do from the top. There'll be a lot of business owners listening to this. And if I haven't done my job properly or you haven't done your job properly, what they'll take from this conversation about diversity is, oh my goodness, we're not diverse enough. We have to go on Instagram and Twitter and release a pride range and, and say how diverse we are when we're not. What are the risks of value signaling and kind of not putting your money where your mouth is in terms of diversity? I think it's important to make commitments and statements of value, but it's also important to back them up. And so into align behaviors with what we say we want. I mean, People from underrepresented backgrounds are quite skeptical of seeing a company celebrate Black History Month or LGBT Pride Month or International Women's Day 
when they, you know, lobby for certain things or give money to certain causes or treat people certain ways or they're in the news for all sorts of scandals or things related, different things make poor decisions. So it's an artful balance, back to kind of one of the pilot guys, artful balance between making commitments and statements that is something that we that we value and that we're working on, but not over committing to claim that you're so woke or progressive or have it all, because that's going to set you up to be potentially a target. Versus saying this is something we're committed to doing better on, and here's the specific ways we're going to do that, right? And and to you know acknowledge that maybe you're not as far along as you'd want to be, and that you need help of the employees. And I think there's an earnestness into it versus I think there's a very performative virtue signaling that people see through. You put up something on your Twitter account, or you put up something on your email signature that like just saying it. You want to have a say and do relationship. If we say this, what are we doing that demonstrates that others could observe that that's actually the case? So it's like, oh, it's International Women's History Month. You know what? We did a pay equity analysis and made sure that everyone was paid fairly regardless of their gender. Amazing. That is aligning it. You know, hey, we invested in women-owned small business supplier. We did these things. You know, we realized that we have free beer in the break room, but we're charging for tampons in the bathroom. Uh, we made we we got rid of the charge. We got better tampons. We put them in a nice dish in the women's bathroom. Like now we have. You know, that's where you actually show rather than tell what's important to you on diversity. And if you don't do that. You're at risk, you know, be called out to be dragged to your Glassdoor reviews, your social media, your Google reviews, your Yelp, all of it, your employer brand, et cetera, that people say, hey, you know, this is a joke. They say this, but they're not this. You can't trust these people. They're scammers, et cetera. It can be, and it can in effect, not just your employer brand, but your consumer brand, because this is where these things start to, you know, Facebook reviews, everything else. People say, oh, and they see that a couple of employees say, hey, this is a horrible place for women. And you're a female consumer and you're like, do I really want my money going to this landscape contractor that's a small business that's toxic to women, apparently, or to this events company or this graphic designer, or this law firm? So there's consequences of having sort of a negative reputation. And this, of course, depends on geography. I'm in New York City. You know, we've got a third of the city is immigrants and we've got people from you know, our city provide services in 150 languages. So it's a different perspective than it may be in other parts of the United States or the world. And so you have to calibrate to what's appropriate in your local market. You're not trying to necessarily be the kind of Manhattan level of, of some of these things, even though Manhattan has a lot of inequity and problems too, not to say that we're a standard per se, but you have to calibrate to your market, to your industry, but you certainly don't want to be in this day and age kind of window dressing and token statements and things like that, because that worked 10 or 15 years ago. But with the level of transparency of information online and with social, people see through that very, very quickly. And employees are a lot more empowered and a lot more knowledgeable about sort of what to look for. And we'll call it out. And it can come with great reputational and brand consequences. Ben Brooks, HR influencer and founder and CEO of Pilot. Thanks so much for this little chat on company culture and diversity. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here and would love to connect with any of the listeners on LinkedIn or online. And you'll be able to find those links in the episode description. Thanks a lot, Ben. Cheers. Coming up next time, a return to regular programming. Yeah, I'm a micromanager. Hello. Uh, You should not do it. I'm trying to break myself. I'm doing pretty good, but I am a traditional micromanager. 
When you start a business, you want to control every little piece of it. It's your baby. Nobody else is going to do as good a job as you are with it. Those are some of the things that I guess entrepreneurs, we tell ourselves. I don't believe in micromanaging, but the only way to get out of micromanaging is to hire the best, best people. A lot of people will leave you if you micromanage. So I'm sort of adamantly against it. That's it for this special episode of Making It Work. Tell us what you think by rating this podcast and leaving a comment. We'd also love to know what you think of this special with Ben. So send us your thoughts to makingitwork at fedex.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. That way you won't miss any future episodes. A big thanks to our expert Ben Brooks for taking the time to chat. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at BenBrooksNY or on his website, pilot.coach. Making It Work is produced by Yolene Marguerite, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg with creative direction from Jeroen von Koningshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin. <laughs>